Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody. Welcome to Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark, and this episode we speak to a musical legend. John Anderson has been singing since the early 60s, and he's still going strong. In addition to all the albums he's made with Yes, he's worked with Vangelis, John Paul Jones, Toto, Anderson Bruford, Wakeman and Howe, and a lot more. His voice is one of the most unique in music, but he wasn't always comfortable with it. And when the sound of Yes changed in the 80s, he talks about how he adjusted. He gives us some great news about a couple of albums that have been unreleased for years. And he talks about his new album, A Thousand Hands, his new single, Go Screw Yourself, and his experience with interdimensional realities. Oh, and he also tries Mongolian throat singing for me. Follow him on social media, pick up A Thousand Hands in all the usual places. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media. And if you like the shows we're giving you, consider treating us to a cup of coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety. There's no subscription, no commitment. And now I present to you John Anderson of Yes on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Okay. Hi, this is John Anderson. Go listen to 1000 Hands. I'm on Performance Anxiety. Is that right? Anxiety Performance. John Anderson from Yes. Thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. This is, a, this is just fantastic. Good. Good. What I like to do is I like to find out more about how you got to where you are. And, and you've got quite a lot of things that got you to where you are. So I hope you don't mind a few questions because. No problem. No problem. So you grew up in a family that, that was really steeped in entertainment. Um, and your dad Actually, both your parents were uh, championship ballroom dancers, were they not? That's true. That's very true. My my father, when he came out of the when the war ended, you know, I was born towards the end of the war in 1944, and my dad was still in the army, and he was going around as a comedian. I, and I didn't know anything about this, but wow. he played the mouth organ. And, and, and I remember seeing him when I was just one years old. I was in this stroller, you know, okay. and I was at this big uh, sort of event. It was about 200 people in my small town. And my dad was on stage and he had a kilt. 
and he had a thing with a mustache, and he was telling terrible jokes. <laughs> I'm playing the mouth organ. So as I grew up uh, around them, I'd go and watch them bowl and dance, you know, in the local hall. Yeah. And uh, listening to uh, beautiful music from Glenn Miller and uh, all those sporties sort of bands, you know? Right. And they They'd be floating around the room, beautiful to watch, oh. along with others, but they were pretty famous in our small town. That's really well. So so entertainment is kind of in your blood. Well, it's interesting that they called me John Roy uh, because I was hoped that it was John Royston, which is a Scottish name. My dad was Scottish. But it, John Roy was a very famous uh, musical performer in in uh, in those days okay. and his name was john roy the melody boy and he'd come on stage with a ukulele and he'd ask people to shout out ideas and he'd sing about him oh wow was his, he was a very spontaneous singer and it was only a few years ago i remembered of course that's why i, I can sing melodies every, every anytime <laughs> every every day i sing different melodies because I, um, I come from that world of the, the old school of uh, writing music, spontaneous, you know? Oh, that's really cool. And you know, yeah. when did you start playing? Because I, I read something that you actually started playing washboard was one of, your first, one of your first instruments. Yeah, when I was nine years old, I joined my first band. It was like three or four guys with a couple of guitars, somebody on a drummer, and I was on the washboard with the little metal things on my fingers yeah. to make it sound loud, you know? <laughs> yeah. And we were, funnily, funnily enough, we were doing American songs. Most of them were American country, country folk songs. I don't know what they called it here, but over in England, there was a guy called Lonnie Donegan. Oh, yeah. He was very, yeah. And he was doing this uh, skiffle, yes. it was called. And I think skiffle was an American thing. Yeah. Bet on Steamball, because he might win, win, win. Bet on Steamball, because he might win. It's not about a horse. <laughs> Thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. And so we were terrible. I know we never did a gig, but we made a hell of a noise in the garage. That's, <laughs> That's really cool. Now, you missed your calling, though. About what? About maybe. 15 years ago, North Mississippi All-Stars brought the uh, wash the uh, washboard back. They electrified it and put yeah. a wah-wah pedal on it. Oh, there you go. I was <laughs> way ahead of my time. Exactly. <laughs> was your brother Tony in one of your bands? Yeah, Tony was in the band. And uh, when I started working sort of with the, with the band, it was in 1962. My, my brother had a band called The Warriors. Right, and right. I was I was there. I was uh, seventeen, I think, eighteen. Okay. And uh, I remember it vividly because it was 1963. Me and my brother went to see the Beatles because they just put out a song on the radio called "Love Me Do." Yeah. And my brother was very into that. He said we had a motorbike, so we drove on the motorbike just north of Liverpool, a place called Southport. And we went in, and there was about five or six hundred people in this place. 
And uh, this band was really, really rocking. It was really, really good. And the girls screamed at the end of the songs. Yeah. But then we saw that the album was for sale. And we had a T-shirt. Can you believe it? Wow. I know. Early merch. Way, way before anybody had ever done that. Yeah. And so we became Beatles fanatics, you know. And six months later, we went to our local uh, town, which was bigger than where I was born, this place called Black Blackburn, and, and the Beatles were playing there. So we went to see them. We couldn't hear a damn thing because everybody was screaming. Oh. Six months later, this whole thing had exploded. You know? Man. And uh, so I remember watching Hard Day's Night and realizing, I want to be a Beatle. <laughs> <laughs> was this around the time you were working on the farm? Oh, yeah. We were working on the farm since I was 10, 11 years old. Delivering milk and you know, keeping keeping the money going for this household. My dad was very ill, yeah, and too much dancing, I think, but, <laughs> well, something like that. Yeah. And uh, so, I was I was I left school at fourteen, so I go straight to the farm. We oh. stood about a mile. It was a mile up the road. I used to get a bus every morning at five thirty, and uh, you know, you go you chase cows around the field, get them into the place to milk them, and then put them in a milk in a bottle and get them, and go out and you know, deliver them. Right. And that was my gig till I was about 17, 16, about 16. And I thought, I don't want to do this all my life. It's very <laughs> healthy, but I don't want to do it all my life. So that's when I just, uh, I joined a rock and roll band. Is were you always a singer or uh, was an... Uh, yeah. Well, the thing was, me and Tony, we did the Everett Brothers. And I did the high vocal. And Tony did the lower vocal. And we did all the, you know, uh, dream, 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 dream. Not as good as that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and wake up, little Susie. Wake up. Holding great songs. Yeah. And... Uh, that's what we did when I joined the band. We did uh, Everly Brothers and Beatles songs, Holly's songs. We always did the top 10 hits, you know, because that's what the audience wanted, you know? Yeah, oh yeah. And the, the Warriors lasted for a while. You were, you guys were playing out for quite quite some time before you... We, yeah, it was probably five, four years, five years. Okay. By, by the time, you see... In the band, my brother left the band after a year or so because he got married and had uh, some kids. And then I decided to keep going with the band. And uh, we needed a, a, a keyboard player. So we got this guy, Brian Chatton, who was uh, 16. This is around 1966. And he joined the band only because he could play Green Onions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anybody who could play Green Onions, you were in the band. Yeah. And he, was good he was a good-looking guy. <laughs> and uh, it's so funny. But that's the guy I started writing 1,000 Hands with. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Years, years, you know, 30 years later, you know, we got together and wrote some songs together, which became 1,000 Hands. So oh, that's amazing. It's bizarre, that's... you know, in a way. Yeah, because, you know, in the 60s, everything was uh, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Beach Boys, Frank Zappa. So by the end of that period, 
I was uh, I was in the band, but they wouldn't rehearse in the band. The guys in the Warriors, they got sick and tired of me asking them to rehearse. <laughs> so they told me to, they told me to go away, not in those words. <laughs> they kept saying, John, stop waking us up in the morning, go away. So after the third day, this, we were in uh, Frankfurt in Germany, and they just wouldn't rehearse any new stuff. And uh, I got sick and tired, and I left the band and went to... Uh, Munich, and I, I, I had that incredible fortune to go to a club with these two girls that were taking care of me because I was so high on acid at that time. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't really verbalize what was going on in my head. Wow. But uh, we went to see uh, this band, and it was, it was uh, Jimi Hendrix and The Experience. They were doing touring clubs, you know? Yeah. And it was unbelievable to meet him and just smoke a joint with him at wow. the party afterwards, you know. Oh, man. I know. And then I went to London looking for fame and fortune. Yeah. <laughs> now, is that the time? So, so you leave the Warriors, and then I saw that you were you were singing with the party, uh, Les Crunches, and singing demos yeah. for Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the deal was... I had a very mystical thing that happened when I was in Munich. The okay. English Gardens is a beautiful part of Munich. And I used to go there every day trying to figure out why I was alive. Oh. Why am I alive? In my mind, I was going round and round and round and round. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I just didn't know what to do with myself. All of a sudden, I heard this voice saying, John. And I looked around, I was in the middle of a field. You know, there's nobody around. <laughs> John, John, yeah, nothing really matters. Don't worry. Who the heck is that? <laughs> and that was it. So I ran back to the apartment. I was staying with these uh, two girls and uh, opened the door. And on the floor was a telegram. And it was a telegram from my mother. She said on the telegram, she said, John, there's a group in Frankfurt wants you to be the singer in the band. Here's the phone number. Love you. <laughs> so and all of a sudden, I realized that was it. Why I was so upset about life is because I didn't think anybody wanted me, you know. But this band wanted me. Wow. And they were called the Gentle Party. And they lived in uh, okay. just near Frankfurt. So I joined them for a few months and then went to London. And uh, the rest is history. Wow. <laughs> so I, okay, so I do have a question. I mean, the purpose of this show is not to go rehash you know, the, the same things that, you know, the history that, that's been well recorded. I want to hear some interesting things, but I do have a question. I've been listening to a lot of the older stuff, you know, the, the the stuff with the Warriors. Um, yeah. And terrible. <laughs> well, and that the Hans Christian Henderson stuff as well. And terrible. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because I, never my love uh, specifically in, in more than Mississippi hobo, but yeah. your voice sounds a lot different to me than it does even on the very first yes album. Loses desire for you. Never my love. 
What what happened? How did you find your voice? Practice. I just kept singing until it got better. I, I never liked the recordings I did. Okay. And, uh, but I was, you know, in those days, you you do anything for a couple of dollars or pounds in those days. Yeah. Something to rent, you know, and have something to eat, and then. You know, I did uh, Never My Love. I loved the association anyway. And uh, even when me and Chris met, we talked about Simon, Paul Simon's song, Simon and Garfunkel, mm-hmm. the association. And that's when we decided to put a band together that could play a lot of different kinds of music, but vocally could be just really, really, really good. Had three singers, big harmonies, you know. So yeah. that's when you start to realize... Um, Let's make a record. Well, we're on tour for, yes, we're on tour for about a year, doing clubs, a couple of colleges, some special gigs here and there. And uh, then we started recording our first album, and I still didn't like my voice at all, but we did it. And then did a second album. I thought, it's still not really good, so I'll just, I'll just keep singing until it gets better. <laughs> I think it was the Yes album. And then all of a sudden, the Yes album, I thought, and my songs were getting better as well. And uh, by the time we did Fragile, I thought, hey, my voice is pretty good. <laughs> but I, I, I was maybe uh, I stopped smoking. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, that, that may have something to do with it. That helped. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> well, not, not stop smoking totally, but... Right. Yeah. Because I used to I used to smoke to try and make my voice more rock and roll, you know. I would now. I wanted to see. That's the one thing I wanted to ask was: Were you always your voice is really unique? And I mean, it doesn't sound like anybody else that I've I, I've, I've ever heard. And right. and my early ex- exposure to you has always been through yes, and going back and hearing those older things where those older songs where you sound a little bit different. I was curious to know if if you were singing that way on purpose because I did, were you always comfortable with your voice sounding as unique and not maybe as classically rock and roll and gravelly? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that really helped was when I started writing a lot and my, my I'd write my lyrics and, and, and I'd be singing a certain thing about something. I'd be singing about the cosmos or the more... I don't know how to explain, but once I started singing my own lyrics, I tended to sing a certain style, Mm -hmm. and I knew that I had a not your average rock and roll voice, so I I just stuck to it and realized that my my tone is alto tenor, so I'll just sing the way I am, and I think it was... uh, you know, your move, uh, all good people, and fragile, especially. But the Yes album was very, very unique. That I could sing a certain style. It actually worked with the band because they were very musically very aggressive at times. Yeah, we uh, sing how it was always more melodic with this beautiful guitar work, and I just seemed to fit in vocally. And see, uh, Chris Squire's beautiful vocals. When I listen to some of the original recordings yeah. or some live shows, he, Chris was always there. And he had such a beautiful bass part, oh, yeah. always balancing out the voice, and always it wasn't grunge or anything like that, except for the end of Starship Trooper, very grunge. Yeah, <laughs> that is a great track. 
comfortable with your voice as you're writing is that how things like uh we have heaven start to to develop yeah i'd i'd seen uh some some recording video actually of uh of uh pygmies in west africa who would go out foraging and they'd be singing all the time like some of the insects sing and the birds and they'd beat and bump and beat and bump yeah. and beat and he put them together. So I started doing that at home on my Rebox tape recorder. And then we were recording uh, Fragile at that time. And uh, Chris was working out his bass solo, which was the end of, uh, I think, uh, Long Distance Runaround. Because we went, Long Distance Runaround, where do we go? And I just said, do a bass solo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. You know, let the musicians let them play something. Yeah. And uh, so I went downstairs in the studio where ELP were, but they had a day off. So I just used the equipment and just sang this part. He is here. He and oh, do look around. I throw them all together in a rhythmic sort of vocal way, you know. Okay. And. Uh, and then Steve decided to do a guitar and a solo, and then Rick did a, a keyboard, cans and Brahms. So all of a sudden, we had four powerful songs with four solo individual ideas, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, it really worked. And then songs start to expand and get longer and yeah. longer. But what, yeah. what, what was really interesting to me is that in that that same time period, there's a, uh, there's several bands doing things like that. Were you aware of, of yeah. I mean, I'm sure you were aware of, you know, King Crimson and, and all, but I mean, there's, you know, <laughs> the same time there, there's them, King Crimson, there's Can, Genesis, Camel, Aphrodite's yeah. Child. I mean, amazing stuff going all at the same time. Were you, were you guys? Yeah, we never listened to each other, to okay. be honest. I never listened to anybody. I just got on with this idea that I keep having, and I still do every day, is this adventure in music. Me, me and Chris went down to the speakeasy one night, probably 69, and uh, it was a band setting up and just going to play and everything. They were called King Crimson. We didn't know who they were. And they just played their record. And me and Chris just sat there but all the way through the show and went, Shit, we gotta rehearse more. <laughs> this this is this is too damn good, which it was. It was revolutionary. Yeah. You know? And the next time that happened was about uh, four five, four years later. We were playing a show. We were on a little tour with the Kings, oh, wow. and we played in New York uh, State um, University. And the opening act was this unknown band called Mahabishnu Orchestra. 
Wow. And me and Chris sat through sound check and went, we got a rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> this is too, too damn amazing. Wow. And that happens every three or four years. Somebody wakes you up with their music, you know? Yeah. And it's a, it's a way of pushing your uh, ideal further on, you know? Yeah. Uh, my, latest, my latest one is, is the brilliant uh, Jacob Collier. Oh, okay. Really is Mozart reborn. This guy is unbelievable musically speaking, you know? Oh, wow. Seriously good. Seriously good. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that's somebody for me and everybody else to, to check out. Yeah. Now, as you guys are, are writing more albums, the songs are getting longer and more deep and, and, and more layered. And Crazy. Yeah, yeah, crazy. There you go. It's, yeah. I have two questions about that. It, it was, number one, was radio airplay a concern at all for you guys? Did you care about that? Well, the funny thing was when we did the Fragile Tour, we were playing a lot of uh, universities, mm -hmm. and uh, we go to these places and they had the old radio station, FM radio, in those days. Yeah. And they would play Starship Trooper all the way through. Oh, wow. And they would play Roundabout all the way through. And then I, I looked at Steve and said, I think uh, we can expand a little bit more on what we're doing yeah. and maybe make a 20-minute piece of music because you could only fit 20 minutes on each side of an album. Otherwise, the sounds don't get better. It just get worse. Right. It's 20 minutes each. 18 to 20 minutes is the best sort of time. And on that last, on that tour of Fragile, uh, I, I was listening to a composer who changed the landscape of classical music in the early 20th century. His name is Gene Sibelius. Now, I was listening to the Seventh Symphony of Gene Sibelius. Now, usually symphonies were in three parts. Okay. Like, seven minutes, six minutes, seven minutes sort of thing too. But this seventh symphony, I play it and have a joint as you do. Yeah. And uh, I'd be listening to it and then it would finish. And then I'd put it on again and listen to it and go off on this dream, you know, like musical dream. And then it would finish and I thought, wow, it's 26 minutes long. And there's no stopping, it just goes. And it's the most, it still is one of the most glorious pieces of music I've ever heard in my life. Oh, man. So I studied it, you know, and then I turned to Steve Howe and said, we need to write a piece of music that lasts more than tw 10 minutes, 12 minutes, you know? Yeah. So we started writing close to the edge and then we had this mid middle section that lasted three minutes with very little happening and like an ocean of sound uh, that I got from uh, listening to... Uh, a guy who created an album called Sonic Seasoning. And uh, it was like electronic music, like war like oceans of sound. It was just, okay. just so beautiful. I'll remember his name in a minute. <laughs> but, but then, you know, when we finished uh, Close to the Edge, 
we found out that FM radio had been stopped in America because it wasn't making any money. So everything went upside down. And now all you had in America was the top 20 or top 40 right. over and over and over again. So in a way, we just kept going that way when the radio went that way. Right. And thankfully, I can only say thank you to the fans who stuck with Yes at that time. They still came out and watched the, the band play long-form pieces of music yeah. for the next uh, few years, you know, really. Now, it's quite amazing. That was the other question I wanted to ask, is as you're developing these very dense pieces of music that are 20, 25 minutes long, as you're writing, are you thinking about how you're going to pull things off live? Or again, is that, we'll just, we'll just worry about that after we get what we want in the studio. At that time, because I, I started off with Yes when there was a lot of good staging going on. Okay. Uh, I remember the, uh, there was a, a company called Joe's Lights out of San Francisco. They toured the, the Chambers Brothers. Great band, but man, the visuals were just out of sight. Yeah. Projection. So when Yes first started, we started using a bit of projection here and there. And then a friend of mine showed me a photograph of this guy called Vangelis with laser beams coming over him. And yeah. I said, where the hell are those laser beams? <laughs> so we, we got the laser beams and went on tour with them for, uh, you know, topographic and then gaze of delirium with laser beams and everything and like, it blew people away. And a lot of people started using that, laser beams and everything. And staging was all, because you're playing in front of 5,000 to 10,000 people every show. Yeah. What are the people at the back getting? A little person in white called John Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, laser, or laser beams that come all over them. Yeah, yeah. that's what they need. <laughs> and that's what we spent. We spent a lot of money on, on, on touring doing doing uh, the visual show, which was really good. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So what spurred the desire to start wanting to do solo albums? I think that was uh, just after the tour of uh, Gaze of Delirium. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any ideas where I was going, actually, musically at that time. I didn't quite know what was going to be the next step for Yes in my mind, because uh, Steve said he was going to do a solo album. He'd been writing some symphonic class classical music for guitar. Okay. Then Chris said, I'm going to make a solo album. And I thought, okay, then I will. And uh, I've been collecting a lot of instruments on tours. So oh, I had a garage full of instruments, like I've still got them here, koto, harp. Yeah, I see that. Uh, drums and uh, flutes and stuff. Okay. I couldn't play them, but I messed around, you know, I messed around. Yeah. So what I decided to do was like, I'm going to lock myself in the garage and I'll play all the instruments. I, I found a friend, Mike Dunn, uh, who is a great engineer, and he would come every day to my garage. And for basically for three months, that's what I did every day was to go in the garage and work on the music and learn how to play sitar. It's wow. like, you're crazy, you know? <laughs> but I'd learn how to play two or three notes and it sounded pretty good. Yeah. And then I'd play harp and, you know, 
then I'd see a story, a big story about this, uh, this uh, bringing music to the earth from the Pleiades in my mind, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I created a solo album by myself, which is a solo album. And you did everything on it, which is awesome. Yeah, I, I drove myself crazy. I just wanted to take it Okay, look at that. See, that, that's another thing I wanted to ask you about is, I mean, you've been singing for, what, like 60 years now? And yeah. I listened to one of my favorite vocal performances ever put to tape is Awaken. And oh. I heard you sing a live version of that from, I think it was 2013 with um, something called Todd Mobile, which I thought was like a cellular phone company. But uh, yeah. <laughs> but I guess it's not. And no, Iceland, yeah, Tottenmobile. And you, your and, your performance uh, is is amazing. It's it, it's just as good, if not better, than the recorded version. It was just magical week. We had one week. Me and my wife went there, and there they were, the band with singers. And then we had three days to rehearse what we were going to record, which was Awaken and Heart of the Sunrise and two or three other ones. And Awaken was like my favorite piece of yes music ever. Oh, uh, mine too. Because I think it sort of saved, it saved the band from extinction. Because oh, really? You Rick, think so? Well, Rick Wakeman rejoined the band. By then, we were very, very, uh, what's the word? We weren't really... Um, as connected as I would like oh, as okay. a band. A, a band starts off as a bunch of guys who don't know each other. We weren't from the same town or city. We're all from different parts of England. And we got together, we made music. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Yeah. But then we got better and better and became famous for a while and everything was like too crazy. <laughs> and, uh, and then... You wonder where you're going to go. Is that the end of Yes? And then we did Going for the One, and Rick rejoined the band. And it was like, it was like heaven for me because uh, that piece of music, uh, Awaken, was something that I started writing with Steve a year earlier. Okay. And then all of a sudden we're recording it, and Rick's in, in the church recording beautiful church organ and I'm in the, I'm in the middle of the, where the pews are playing the harp and the rest of the band are 10 miles away in the studio recording because in, in Switzerland that's where we recorded it they have perfect uh, telephone lines so you could actually record things through the telephone system oh wow so they, yeah so when when we did a, that recording in Iceland We'd, we'd rehearsed and then we had a day with the orchestra and choir. And it felt good, but I didn't think it was going to be so good. Yeah. But you, you know, keep your fingers crossed and then you walk on stage and you're there and there's a 
a couple of thousand people. It's a beautiful, beautiful, uh, incredible theater in, in, in uh, Reykjavik. And uh, all of a sudden, as soon as we started playing, you could feel that we knew where, where we were going. There was something, well, we're not in control anymore. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> the musical gods take over and say, we bless you, we bless you, you're going to have a great night. <laughs> and it turned out to be a great recording and really well filmed as well. So I'm Thank ever you. thankful for for the you know the people that put it together in Iceland. So am I. We're talking about going back in a couple of years and doing some more work, but oh, cool. really fantastic. Thank you. Like you said, I'm very grateful it was recorded because I, I've been listening to it over and over and over again. It's just, it's a beautiful version of my, like I said, one of my favorite vocal performances ever recorded. So, Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I do, I want to ask you a question about the, well, several questions actually, about the 80s because things changed a lot for you. The sound of Yes changed. You did a lot of different projects in the 80s as well. Trevor Rabin yeah. joined the band. Um, yeah. What was the response when when you went from these like long twenty minute songs to more radio friendly music on nine hundred one two five? Were you? I mean, I mean, I know you pulled in a whole bunch of new fans with "Owner of a Lonely Heart," but was yeah. there a good response from the longtime fans to the new music? Well. What happened was uh, we tried to make an album in Paris and the producer really screwed it up because he was more he was more interested in going to the clubs as Chris was. Now. Yeah. So we never saw we never saw them, so we never got things done. So eventually you think that's the end of that, you know. And then I was living in the south of France and uh, writing some different kinds of music. So you might think uh, sort of symphonic music with voice, high choir ideas, which I'm still actually finishing. Okay. And uh, so I just came back to London for a weekend and Chris called me and I've been listening to the local radio through a, a great radio station in Paris called FIP, F-I-P. Okay. It's a great radio station because they play everything. And they were playing a lot of uh, this album called Duck Rock by... Uh, the, the manager of Sex Pistols, Malcolm McLaren. Yeah. He recorded this record, Duck Rock, and there was another record. There's a lot of sampling going on. The producer was Trevor Horn. And uh, so Chris said, I've been working with Trevor Horn, a new guy, Trevor Rabin, and, and Alan, and, and Tony, and we've been having a good time. Would you like to listen to the records? And I said, yeah, okay. So he played them in his car, and I just sat there and went, oh, my God. This is a revelation for me, yeah. musically. Pretty simple stuff, 
But the sound of it, the, the, the samples and the sort of where we thought it was very 80s music, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so I felt very comfortable because Chris said, would you, would you like to sing on it? I said, well, because they were called cinema. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, if, uh, if I sing on it, of course it's going to sound like yes, because that's who I do. That's who right. I am. Yeah. He said, that's what we want, John. <laughs> so, so I went in the following day and spent three weeks writing and changing things around here and there. Because Only the Lonely Heart was already a hit record in my mind when I first heard it. But the, the verses weren't really, they were okay. Yeah. So I just did it some, I did the very staccato movie so. Da -ba -da 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 -da. Da 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 da, da da da, honor of a lonely. It was a hit, you know. Oh yeah. And, and so I wrote the first verse with Trevor Raven, and then the second verse with Trevor Horn and myself. I just, I just had a great time. I had a feeling that I'd missed yes so much, and I, I really had. I missed being in yes, if you like. Yeah. So for the next uh, four years, we toured around the world a couple of times and just before we went on tour I've told the story many times but I went to see Spinal Tap and that that yeah. did it for me like the madness and the craziness <laughs> of uh, going on tour with a hit record yes. is Spinal Tap you know <laughs> so I just laughed my way through three years of tour three or four years of touring oh, it was only cool. later on when the next album came along when they tried to do another hit it's album. Yeah. And I kept saying, you shouldn't be doing this, guys, because we should be making longer form pieces of music. And I've got some ideas here. And, yeah. And uh, John, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, <laughs> okay. And so <laughs> I, was, I was pushed to one side. So I went out and did another album with Mangelis, and I did some more. I did the, an album with the, the wonderful Toto. City of Angels, which was actually in the, in, in the top 10 albums of Canada, but really didn't sell very much in America for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was a good album. And then I did the Christmas album. And then the next thing I did that I think was important to me was ABWH. Yes. Because I still had those songs that I wanted Yes to do. And then I thought, why don't I just call Paul and Rick and Steve and Bill? And, and work with them. And that's what we did. And those are, that's, I love that stuff. But I do have a, a question. For, going back to the early 80s, you, you end up doing some interesting things that never really saw the light of day. And I'm kind of wondering if th a Thousand Hands took 28 years to see the light of day. I, I'm curious to know if any of these projects we'll see the light of day. So let me ask you about a couple of these things here. You wrote two other pieces and I've, I know of one, I've heard bits and pieces of one, uh, but the first is the firstborn, the piece that you wrote on uh, Daphne Charters. Is what that was it on? the album you wrote called firstborn? 
It's the life and work of Daphne Charters. Oh, sorry. One sec. Uh, gosh, thank you. Daphne Charters. I know Daphne Charters. I'm just trying to think now. Gosh, gosh. My, my mind is spinning. My mind is mush. Well, I'll tell you, I'll ask you about another one because something weird happened. A buddy of mine knows I like your solo work and, and yes. And also he found an album and he sent it to me. And I, I just until recent, I didn't realize until about three or four days ago that it's not an official release, but it's the work you did. You, the album you wrote about Mark Chagall. Ah, that's very interesting because it's going to happen one day. I always say, about two or three times it nearly happened when we went to, uh, to the theater in London, in Birmingham, in England. And nearly one time, uh, there's a company in, uh, in North Carolina that were interested. And I was always interested, but it never was the right time. But now I think the right time is happening. And uh, we'll find out in the, in the next two or three months if it's going to happen the way we think. Because I think, in my mind, I met Mark Chagall on his 19th birthday, and I didn't know very much about him, but then I listened and looked at his paintings and listened to him talk. Because I went to his house and started singing to him, you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was getting bored. So <laughs> I go and sing a song to him, you know. <laughs> it, it's going to work out one day. But Daphne George's, I must remember what the hell that was. I And I, I read that. Uh, I don't remember where I read it, but I read it yesterday or today and while i'm trying to to get some information on, on some things to ask you that are you know not hey how did you come up with the band name yes and stuff so that could be totally coming out of somebody else's ass too i don't know but hey, no, no i don't i don't know but i i just know definitely charges i've got to remember who what it says songs about her it just yeah it says, um, the two musicals remain unreleased. The first is Firstborn, a piece based on the life and work of Daphne Charters uh, and, and her relationship with fairies. Got it. Now, here's, here's the story. Basically, I've had some encounters with interdimensional reality over the years. As part of my understanding that we're not alone, mm -hmm. just human beings on this planet. Right, right. The life, the fairy kingdom, the deviant world. And all over the world where I've been, uh, on my 40th birthday, I was on an island called Tiaman near Indonesia. And uh, I had this visitation of this beautiful fairy. It's hard to explain, really. Wow. But it was like uh, midnight, and there was this light flying around the room. And I've been learning about the art of seeing rather than looking. Because we see a tree, but we don't look at it for what it truly is. Okay. We see a flower, but we don't look at it for what it truly is. Or vice versa, we look at it, but we don't see it for what it truly is. Okay, yeah. So this thing came up, it was just, I, I thought it was a firefly, but it never went off. It was actually just moving around the room. And then it came over my head. And as I looked at it, it just changed into a beautiful, you could see through its beautiful wings and it was just there. Oh, wow. I mean, it spoke to me in a sort of dreamlike fashion that uh, human beings uh, ain't seen nothing yet because there's more to come. Wow. Because we used to have a close relationship with nature, Mother Nature. So that spurred me on to write uh, Firstborn. Okay. That was the book by Daphne Charters. And since then, I've had various times where 
uh, I'm ready to re rewrite it, re-release it. Just the last six months, this incredible sad period of time where hundreds of thousands of people have passed away yeah. through this virus. And you think about if, it, if every one person has 10 people that love them, that means 200, 200, you know, 4 million people are going through hell. Yeah. Losing loved ones, you know? Yep. And I've been at home. Me and my wife had to, had to go into uh, quarantine in the beginning of March. Yeah, yeah. I did too. So we've, yeah, we've been, we've been in quarantine ever since. We've been out three times. When wow. Maybe three times and that's all. And wow. so I've been in my studio remembering all this music and rewriting it and putting it back together again. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So I've got music up the wazoo. <laughs> it's... it's It'll, the, the music that I've got will last the next 20 years. Oh, I'm still it, slowly finishing it. And in the midst of that was obviously uh, before the COVID thing was uh, 1990, me and my friend from the Warriors, Brian Chatton, yeah. wrote these songs, which became 1,000 Hands. So music is everlasting. You, you can't really say, well, okay, it's lost. I did it in 19... You know, eighty-five. No, you never lose the music; it's still around me. And, I, and I'm actually this last week. I found this guy, who's the sweetest guy, and he he remembers the songs that uh, I was working on a, an album called Elias. Mm -hmm. He actually did a performance of Elias two years ago in Philadelphia with all his friends, oh, wow. and I loved it. So we're we're in touch with each other now. Uh, working on Zamran, which is the son of Elias. And through meeting him just, just this last week, I have had this breakthrough because I was just creating so much music and it was driving me crazy. <laughs> and then I, I listened to Elias about two weeks ago and realized, uh... so Zamran, which is the son of Elias, is going to sound a little bit like Elias, the original album. So <laughs> well, good. Keep, keep the momentum going. Yeah. But I thought I had to change the whole musical landscape, but I'm, I'm going to be working on that for the next uh, six months, so I'm happy. Oh, that's awesome. The I wanted to thank you for an album that gets kind of maligned a little bit in the yes catalog because it, but it's the album that got me into yes in the first place. And it's union. I absolutely Ooh. love that album. And I hear so many people yeah. saying, I don't like it. It's just, it's just kind of a strange album. It's everybody, <laughs> but that's the album that really got me into you guys. I love that because what, what happened? I did the ABWH album. Mm-hmm. And then I said to the guys at the end of the tour, let's do another one. And they said, okay. But they wanted to do it uh, more of a studio. Let's all get together in the studio and make music. And I said, I think I'd rather do it like, like I did the first album, which I made a demo of all the songs. And I worked with Steve and Rick and, and, and Bill. I worked with them, you know, made tapes with them. And then I went away with some musicians and I created a demo. Right. And I said, it really works when I can just have concentration with people who are just very, very talented people. 
uh, rather than going through the emotions of knowing each other more in the studio. But they wanted to do the studio show, the rehearsals, and that didn't work. So we, we actually, the reason it didn't work, one of the reasons was when we were doing it in South of France, and uh, we were there as a band with, with uh, Bill, Steve, Rick, and Tony Levin. Mm-hmm. And we were good, you know, Tony Levin's great. Oh, yeah. We just couldn't get into a groove. There was a lot of jamming going on. So we all went to Paris, and it just happened to be the uh, the European soccer matches, the European Cup. Okay. But we could we could never find Rick. So it was just it sort of imploded. So then there was a phone call from the record company saying we've invested a lot of money in this album. Can we can can you guys get together with Chris and Trevor in LA? And I just said yeah. At the moment, why not? Because we don't know where we're going. Yeah. But we had about five or six good songs. So they have five or six good songs, and then we put them together as an album. But the key to it was performance, because when we went on stage, there were eight people on stage. Yeah. It was magnificent. It was the best touring that I've ever done, the wow. Union tour. It God. was very magical. And uh, the album did well. But, you know, it just... It's, it's solidified that, you know, yes, kept going over the years, no matter what, you know? Yeah. Well, one of my favorite tracks of by the band, yes, is on that, and it's Take the Water to the Mountain. That is... Yeah! I love that Ooh. song. This is a song from that world, that sort of that world of uh, indigenous world. You know, very, very, very important time. It's very powerful. It, I absolutely love that song. So, thank you, thank you. So I've I've read or heard that touring that nobody was happy during the making of the touring of that album. So is that is that all pretty much all crap? Was I mean? <laughs> well, it's 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 funny. I can only give you one instance of what happened. Um, you know, we've known each other forever, we're brothers. You know, sometimes yeah. brothers love each other, sometimes not too yeah. much. You know? I've got one. So yeah. There was, yeah, there was a lot of cocaine around. <laughs> no, I never, I never went there at all ever. But I remember we were, we were doing a sound check. I think it was the fifth, uh, fifth show, and uh, see who, who can be. Kind of funny at times. <laughs> he waved me off. Jump, jump, jump. 
can you tell Trevor to turn down a bit, please? And I said, say it again. Said, you want me to tell Trevor to turn down? Okay. So I was on the other side. Trevor was on the other side of the stage. It was around stage. You know? Right. So I went to the other side of the stage and I said, Trevor, I said, you're cool, man. <laughs> That's all I could say. You know, I couldn't say. Can you turn down? <laughs> he wants to turn down. So it was that. It was that sort of slight imbalance of uh, friendliness. He was just getting on with business, you know. Get yeah. on stage. The great thing was when we were on stage, we were so damn good, and everybody played great. Oh yeah. I had some of my favorite favorite moments so doing awaken at the. Uh, the forum in LA, we did awaken. I kid you not, and I wasn't strong. I was I was pretty clear, but we came to the ending, the big the big ending of awaken. The big ending comes yeah. up, and I looked up, and this light came down from outside of the forum and went. It's like movies, you know. Oh wow! And I was like, oh, I'm singing away. Master of images, songs cast a light on you, heart through dark ties, and so on. Wow. <laughs> I thought I was seriously in, in, on another planet. And every, every audience loved the show. It was oh, great. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. All right, so let, let's get to the, the latest album, Thousand Hands. It took 28 years to see the light of day. What? I know, yeah. It's like... Uh, <laughs> It's a mystery and a miracle at the same time because me and Brian Chatton joined, he joined the Warriors in 66 and we kept in touch over the years. And he got on tour with B.B. King, who's a damn good keyboard player. Oh, okay. And uh, we went up to Big Bear with three, three friends from three or four friends, music, musicians. We had a, a rented an A-frame up in near the ski resort. And we started recording and we, I got to say, I don't think I've ever laughed as much in my life because Brian, Brian Chatton, besides being a great musician, he's the funniest guy in the world. Oh, he, really? He gets himself into so many troubles. <laughs> <laughs> the natural guy who gets into trouble a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even making breakfast, he's in trouble. You know, yeah. Something about him. So we had a great time. And then uh, when I went down to LA and got Chris and Alan White to play on a couple of tracks. And I, called, I started saying to Brian, I said, we should call this album Us Lot, which means a lot of us, if you live up north of England, okay. Us Lot. And uh, so we started getting in touch. With, I was very interested in getting in touch with the Beach Boys to get them to sing on a couple of songs. Wow. So I, I met with a couple of the guys, uh, with Bruce Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I met him at Nam. So it's so funny because I drove up to Monterey, where they live, if you want to live up there. Okay. Uh, the day the Rodney King uh, riots happened. Oh, wow. So, already decided to get out of Dodge. So I went out of Dodge. I went north, yeah. met with uh, Bruce and a couple of guys from the Beach Boys and fell in love with this area that I live now. It's near uh, uh, San Luis Obispo. Okay. And uh, 
he, you know, even started thinking about, well, I'm, I'm living in America. I should become an American, you know? Yeah. And uh, so time goes along, you know, and went back to Big Bear, tried to, to finish more songs. We had eight or nine songs, and then Brian decided to run away with a girl and uh, <laughs> get into trouble again. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, but I love the guy. And then I put the 24 tracks in my garage for 26 years, which is bizarre, but they were stacked up there, you know? Oh my and gosh. then about two years ago, this uh, producer, Michael Franklin, he got in touch and said, hi, John, uh, he worked with Brian trying to mix some of the songs, but they didn't sound really that good for some reason. They, they tried to make them more like, uh, I don't either radio friendly or something. It just didn't sound the way I thought it should sound. Okay. So I said, uh, what do you want? And he said, what are the tapes from Big Bear? So I said, they're in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to think about it. So he, he actually got me to send them to him. He lived in Orlando. He lives in Orlando. He has a studio okay. there. And, uh, about two weeks later, he, he, what he did, took the 24 tracks and baked them in an oven mm -hmm, for yeah. an hour, and then you can play them once, you know, they just fall apart, yeah. straight into the computer. He sent me some mixes, and they were so good. And on one of the mixes, which was Activate Me, there's this guy playing flute like crazy. I said, who's playing flute to say, is he an answer? I thought it was. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I said, that's amazing because I always wanted people to play on the record. I said, how many musicians do you know, Michael? He said, well, I went on tour with uh, my brother playing with Chuck Barrett for 15 years. I know everybody. Oh. So wow. I said, well, the first person I always wanted on the record was uh, the drummer Bill, Bill, Bill Billy Cobble. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was in my original orchestra. Yeah. And we'd always been we kept bumping into each other. I saw him in Paris with his band. He was brilliant. So we got Bill Billy to play on "Come Up," which one thousand hands come up, and then he got Chick Corea to play on it. And I said, <sighs> I just worked with the drummer Ponty and get him to play on it as well. So. This and that and this and that guy comes on, another guy comes on. So many people. I, he actually recorded my favorite vocalist band, which was a band called Zap Mama. Oh yeah, from, from Belgium. Yeah, and I'd see, I'd seen those this this band in 1991. Uh, yeah, yeah, they played my college yeah, in '91. Incredible. Yeah, that did sing this music and walk across the stage and yeah. like, oh my god. So, you know, by the time, you know, we got to a certain point, it was like, okay, well, we've got all the songs we need. The last song 
It was an orchestral ver version of a song called Now, which we split into three parts. Like first verse, second verse, last verse at the end of the album. Mm -hmm. Because for, for a song, it didn't really hang together as one song. It would be better to cut it up. Okay. And thankfully, Michael Franklin and uh, Matt, the engineer, they listened to what I wanted. They knew what I wanted. And now and again, we did edits that we didn't think were good. But eventually, they lived with it and it worked. And uh, so we just had to finish the last song. And I thought, well, I'll get Steve to play on it. Because I got Chris, Alan, and I've got Steve. <laughs> so... It made the, the album like that. It made it just right. You know? Oh, man. And it took a while to find a record company. But now the world is changing. The record is out. Yeah. And uh, I'm so grateful that the record got finished. And uh, very excited about the future, musically speaking. All right. So I have a couple questions about some of the tracks on there. Um, okay. You tend to use, and, and like we talked about on um, We Have Heaven and other tracks, you tend to use yeah. your voice like an instrument rather than just singing vocals. Yeah. Uh, so on like Ramalama and where does, yeah. oh, I, I, almost said where yeah. does I almost said where does mucus come from. So <laughs> That's a whole different question. Actually, that could be another. <laughs> And, and where does music come from? All in all, there's something that there is Same as the power that gives you are the power of my love My love All in all, there's something Is it difficult to, to put together, to, to start layering that kind of stuff? No, really. I, it goes back to, to the time that I did uh, We Have Heaven. And it's something that I do all the time. Uh, yeah. It's I, was just, I was actually just doing it uh, this afternoon, which wow. is, uh, you start with, and then you have, banana. And uh, so I, I actually just sent, uh, I have about a dozen of these pieces in my computer over the last 10 years. Oh, so wow. I just sent in a couple that I have with no drums, no keyboards, just vocals. I sent them to Michael and he, very smart guy, he was traveling to China, which he usually does a lot because he's married to a lady from China. Okay. And he has a lot of over there. And uh, he put it on the laptop. And during the course of the flight to China, he added all the samples to Ramalama. And on the way back, he added all the, added all the samples to where does music come from? It was like, wow. My, this is brilliant, you know? That's amazing. Yeah. It, and uh, that's, that's how they were created. Is that the uh, like a throat? Singing that at, at the end of Ramalama? Yes, a sample. Yes, a sample. I can't do it. Oh, okay. It's a Mongo Mongolian. It sounds like you. Like, oh. Whoa. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But I did a song. I, did, I just did a song uh, 
I was looking for it now. I did a song, I did two songs last week with the Mongolian group. And oh. the music is very, very interesting. So I sang with them wow. and it sounds really good. Oh, that, I want to hear that. Yeah, it's yeah. really, really good. I'll send you a copy. Oh, that would be wonderful. And yeah. I, I want to tell you that I love... I found myself. I think that is a such a beautiful yeah. song. I played it for my wife and she fell in love with it. so beautiful they keep us together they, they do they, 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 they open up so many uh, parts of the male experience of life women um, I was lucky to find my, my Jane uh, 28 years ago and uh, changed my life yeah. I've been seeing I've been seeing her in my meditation before I met her See, so wow. w- when I met her I couldn't speak <laughs> oh wow I, my I, wife- I remember she yeah, you say. I, I was just going to say, my wife and I just celebrated our 19th wedding anniversary uh, less than a month ago. It's the best. It, it's oh, the best. By the way, I, for, I, I did want to say happy birthday. Your birthday was just a couple days ago. so. Yeah, I'm now in my 77th year. Wow. Which is cool. And still going strong. Yeah, more than ever. I've got, you know, another 25 years to go. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, I'm writing this music, I'm thinking about this, fulfilling a lot of dreams. You know, I'm very, very fortunate to be able to keep going and yeah. enjoy it. A lot of people kind of mellow out at this point, but you got a little angry with your latest single, uh, Go Screw Yourself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, I honestly, I wrote this years ago when I was working with a friend of mine, Paul Green, who created School of Rock. And okay. uh, 20 years ago, and I worked with them 12 years ago in Long Island, just jamming and singing, teaching them ideas. And, you know, I like to do that with, with uh, young musicians. Yeah. And I tried to get them to play and sing this song I just written, Go Screw Yourself. Yeah. And I started you know, with the politicians, and then I got into the whole idea that. You know, they're out to screw, they're out money, you know, it's all money, money, money. Yeah. You want somebody to come and change the world, you know, same with uh, Wall Street and then same with yep. horrible church situations and yeah. screwing children, it's terrible. And then, uh, you know, after last, my, the last verse, my wife wrote. <laughs> Yes, I'm gonna say. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that. Is that the first 
instance of you recording the word motherfucker? Yeah. Yes. But she used to have uh, da 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 Uncle Fucker. Oh, uh, yeah, Terrence and Philip. Yeah. Yeah, from South Park. Yeah. South Park. Yeah. Oh, she loved that so much. So the idea is the main part of the song is isn't there something we're supposed to do? And you get the kids, young people singing that, but it resounds, you know? Yeah. And I, I always, I, I, I'd actually updated it after Sandy Hook. Oh. And then the gun crap. Yeah. You know, the fact that nobody's done nothing. Nobody's yeah. done nothing. You know, you know, silly old orange man talks about, now he's talking about spending millions and billions of dollars infrastructure. Four years ago, he said infrastructure. You never did a damn thing. And then- <laughs> But that that goes along with the song because every single one of them says that, and every nobody ever gets done. No, it's just too damn crazy. Yeah, and change we must. You know, that's the emblem of the song. Yeah, uh, we must change. We have to change. The, the, the Mother Earth is really trying to tell us a lot of things. Mother Earth created virus. You know? Yeah, and the virus was created because. Very simply, I've got it. I've got it on my website. It was sent to me by my spiritual teacher, and she said, because of the deforestation, animals, insects are being shoved together where they don't usually shove be shoved together. Right. So the virus is coming out of that. Wow! I never and, thought of that. Yeah, it's the. Dis- deforestation mm-hmm. around the world is creating viruses wow. that are very dangerous and they're going to kill us off. I never thought of it like that. Um, unless, you know, we, we treat the Earth Mother with love and respect because actually Earth Mother is our home. And what are we doing to our home? We're destroying it, you know, yeah. from within. And that's why if you look at the the song, Go Screw Yourself, it just came up like, you're screwing the world, so go screw yourself, unless you want to join, like we all did in the 60s. We all wanted to be peace, love, make love, not war, mm-hmm. things like that. 60s was a very powerful time. And here we are in 2020, in a very, very, very volatile moment. Yeah. So change we must, that's all. I have some questions for you from listeners i threw it out on social media letting them know i was going to have you on and i got a few questions and i just kind of went back to the ones that, that came up the most and you've actually yeah. already answered a few as far as things like touring uh yeah. one of your, your favorite iterations of yes and so you, yeah. you'd mentioned the the union era but yeah. uh one was how is your health you had a, a pretty bad health scare recently and a lot of people want to know how you're doing and, and making sure you're okay. Really, really good. Very, very, very happy, very healthy. Uh, I actually, when we were told to quarantine, I went out to do some barbecue and I slipped and broke my foot. Uh, so I thought, okay, that's a sign. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere for three months, which was more than that, six months. But eight years ago, in what, 2008, I, I had trouble uh, touring with Yes from the the smoke that they use on stage. It was oil-based, oh. but it was affecting my lungs. And they found out that I had a problem 
worst problem than that because I didn't. I actually stopped breathing in my house. I, I just collapsed and died. Wow. My honey, my wife saved me and took me to uh, hospital. I remember some of it. It was kind of freaky. But then I was in. I was in a coma, uh, induced coma for four days. And I woke up and all my children, my three kids were there. And I, what are you oh, doing here? Yeah. Well, we can't see you. Oh, <laughs> I wasn't going to die. I wasn't going to die. And uh, you go through that and you, you value everything. You value your friendships, your love, love that surrounds you, and your health. And you try to be good to yourself. And then, you know, it just happened that um, at that period, I'd already been doing solo shows because uh, Chris and the other guys wanted to carry on touring, so they got somebody else to sing, and I thought, yeah. okay, I'll, I'll just get on guitar and my ukulele and go and entertain people. And that was a breakthrough for me because I've always wanted to be able to stand there on the stage and sing. And so as soon as I got better, I got much better, I started going on tour solo. And uh, very lucky how things happen in your life. You know, you, you say... You've got to be, enjoy it every day. You've heard it all before. Enjoy every day. It could be your last. Yep. And that's what I do now. I'm, I feel very blessed and uh, very, very grateful that I can enjoy creating new songs and new ideas and new dreams. Yeah. And bringing old ones back to life. Yeah, I'm working on Chagall now. That's fantastic. It's going to happen. Oh, I can't Ooh. wait. All right, and then another question was, what was the worst live experience you've ever had? Oh, boy. Um, I remember on stage, we were playing, we were playing, it's not, it was never a worst anything. It was always funny <laughs> because we, we, we had a stage that went round very, very slow. Mm-hmm. And I kept saying, how do I see everybody like this? And then, hi. <laughs> I got used to it, though. And we're playing Madison Square Gardens. And the whole idea of this uh, stage going around was one engine, electric engine. They just pushed on a wheel that went round. And the stage would go around. And then it would go to a certain point and it would go back very, very slow. Okay. And all of a sudden, it went... <laughs> <laughs> We carried on singing, and you and I were the best I've ever seen. And all of a sudden, it started up again. It started going. And I finished my vocal part, and I went, you could go down these little stairs underneath, you see. And I went down and looked underneath. There's all the roadies pushing you. <laughs> it was like, it was like Ben Hare. Come on, push <laughs> And, oh, that's you amazing. Know, I think halfway through that tour, I was playing Cleveland and some, in the middle, it was an Awaken, and I'm singing towards the end of Awaken, this guy came up behind me and grabbed me and lifted me up in the air. <laughs> and I, 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 I could see his head and I said, it's all okay, you can put me down now, and he put me down. <laughs> and about three policemen jumped on him on stage. Oh my gosh. Um, that sounds like a spinal tap moment. Of course, it happened in Cleveland. My, I'll tell you my last story. Yeah, yeah. We were touring uh, 901.25, and we, we actually went and played in front of half a million people in Brazil at the biggest rock show ever, Rock in Rio. 
along with the big stars were there, you know, the Rod Stewart and all these other bands, you know, and the Kiss and everybody. Half a million people is a lot of people yeah. to play to. But we had a great time. Then we went down to Chile to stay for a while on the beach and then go to Argentina and do a show. So we were doing a state football stadium. And uh, we didn't know what was going on because, as it happens, there'd been a war between England and Argentina, the Falkland War, yeah. a year earlier. So we were the first English band to play in Argentina. Wow. And there was a group of people that threatened to kill us. Oh, my so, God. Yeah. So we had this phone call with the Presidente in our hotel in Chile. And night chili in um, Uruguay. Okay. On this beach, beautiful beach. And then we're in this hotel where, you know, the guy talking to us, okay, I really believe we will take care of you. You are safe. You will not be killed or murdered. You will be taken care of. We will make sure. <laughs> and I said to the manager at the time, I said, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> I'm, I'm going home. He said, no, no, it'll be okay. Don't worry. So, we all went to the airport, and each guy, there was, uh, there was uh, Tony Kaye, Alan White, Chris Squire, me, Trevor Raven. We all had our own jet plane. Wow. From the airport. Yeah. And everybody, everybody was around was had dark glasses on it. Because, you know, you don't know who you're talking to. You know? <laughs> so we all get in our planes. We fly to the airport in the center of Buenos Aires. And then we get into these limousines to take us to the Hilton Hotel. And all of a sudden, there's my motorbikes coming along with us. And they've all got the sirens on. That's, why are they making so much bloody noise? Because people will say, oh, here they are. Yeah. You know? so, we, so we stayed there two days. And the second day, we went to do the show. And we go on the, fr the freeway to the stadium. And we get stopped at the freeway where you have to pay a toll, you okay. know? Yeah. I was running the toll booth. He wouldn't let everybody through without paying. <laughs> so we were stuck there for about 20 minutes while they sorted out who's got the money to okay. pay the guy. <laughs> right? And then, so we get to, it's a big stadium surrounded by army people with guns, dark glasses, 2,000 troops around wow. the stadium and we're going in and we're looking at all these people and who are they and any one of them could have killed us by now so we, we get into the dressing room so we're getting into the dressing room and we sort of get ready and there's a crowd of 70,000 people making a lot of noise yeah and some fireworks going off as we'll do you know and I'm thinking what the hell is going on well they're excited 90125, one of the lonely heart, number one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, okay, everybody's ready to go on stage. Yeah, everybody's ready. So we get in the line, and Chris is standing behind me, and he's holding my shoulders like that, you know, and I'm holding, you know, Trevor Raymond, <laughs> walking along, and we're lined up, all these army people with guns. And the crowd are going nuts as we come towards the stage. And we're just going on the stage. And Chris says, you know who they're going to shoot at first, are you? Oh. <laughs> the singer. The singer. <laughs> so I, I, 
<laughs> I spent the I spent the whole show running around. But it's actually you can actually uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, yes, in Argentina, in Argentina, Buenos Aires. Oh. Stadium show, and it's a really good show. We played really good. Everything's a little bit fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we played great. So that was fun. I have to look that and, up. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.